Um, I made a slight factual error last week that I just wanted to correct. It's not important, but um, I was talking about Swami Kriyananda and Hanul Cassidy and Satya and their relative ages, and I, I got a little mixed up. Um, Swami was in, uh, he was like, he was in his mid-40s when I met him and moved to Ananda village. Satya was just about the same age as Swami, just a little, maybe a little bit older, a few years. I had the feeling that Satya was like 50, which seemed really old. But Hanul was actually at, at least in his late 60s. He was older than Swami by 20 years. I think there was as much difference between Swami and Hanul's age as mine and Swami. And Hanul had been um, a devotee of Master, and he'd been living in Southern California. He'd been attending the SRF Center down there. And I'm not quite sure. I think something happened that caused Hanul to be somewhat disenchanted with SRF in some way. And uh, somehow he found Swami, or Swami found him. And Swamiji invited him to come and live at Ananda and basically um, finish his life in, in a fourth ashram style, just meditating. And so when the original domes were built, Swami built his, the temple dome was built, and Hanul built a dome right there too. I believe Nishal and Nakula now live in it. It was, it was re- renovated and expanded. So he, was, he intended to retire there. 65 was very ancient. But uh, what happened was we were trying to start an organic garden, garden and Hanul happened to be a, a, actually a, a, a globally recognized authority on the biodynamic organic gardening methods of Rudolf Steiner. And he saw us just flailing around down there without a clue as to how to actually grow a vegetable. And he looked at it and realized we would never, ever figure it out unless he helped us. So instead of taking on the life that he'd intended, which was in retirement and meditation, he took on the garden. And every morning he was at the garden at 7 o'clock and Ananta, Shivani, Devi, Sadhana Devi, uh, maybe Jaya for a while, um, Kirtani, Anandi, they all became his. And he trained them in organic gardening, Maria, of course. Um, He trained them in organic gardening and he also... He sort of basically trained us how to be refined people. He was, he was a, a good singer. He taught people how to sing. He taught people calligraphy. He taught, us, um, he taught us various things about how to cook. He taught us proper grammar. He taught us manners. <laughs> he sort of took on the, the burly bunch. Um, and uh, he had a coterie of friends. And, and he trained everyone in gardening. Huh? Um, and then, if you wish, he would also training and lots of other things. So actually, the end of his life became quite entertaining and interesting for him. And he worked every day. Um, that was, you know, a garden never sleeps, so he, he worked on it every day. Um, and then uh, he took to his bed, and he had cancer, but he hadn't really said anything about it. And six weeks later, he died at home with uh, Anandi and Arati and with him at the time. And it was, it was really, he was the, he died a, a, a beautiful heroic death. I mean, he was well taken care of by everyone. And he died sitting up in bed looking at Master's picture. He, when he was uh, in the last period of time, his lungs began to fill up. We had resident physicians. And uh, the doctor sort of turned him over so that, I'd, I, I guess, maybe turned him to his side. He put himself back on his back. 
She, he hadn't been speaking for a long time, for days at least. She turned him over again. He put himself on his back. And when she tried to turn him a third time, he said, I know what I am doing. And then I believe he sat up, or he asked people to help him sit up. And he was just stared at Master's picture and left his body. It was very impressive. So he was a very fine asset to Ananda, and I didn't want to... Um, he, he, he was a colorful character. He had a white beard, and he, uh, he, he'd had a career as... I'm just while I'm speaking, he'd, he'd had a career as a professional photographer. And at the end of his life, um, I, he, they managed... He was a Canadian. They managed to arrange somehow through the Canadian government to publish a collection of his black and white photos because he was a real... Um, he was a real a way advanced in his photography. And he also lived in New York City, and he was a good dancer. He was known as Cassidy the Waltz King. And he would go into various dance clubs, and he would just single, si- signal the band for the song he wanted. <laughs> I mean, so he was, he was, and then he ends up at Ananda running our garden, you know. You never know who's who and what's what. He was, he, he was a very, uh, he was a very integral part. I personally, I, I, you either you either went to build buildings, you went to grow food, or you went to cook. And sort of like people, when you first came, those are basically the only jobs there were. I went to cook, so I never went to, I never learned to grow food, because I went right into the kitchen. So, I'll tell you one more just silly story about those early days. This, this couple arrived, they were sort of gypsying around the country, and they were able to do it because they had a little portable business that they did for themselves. One of their parents ran a, uh, made vacuum cleaners for, for swimming pools. And it required some little kind of a bag that was sewn. And uh, so these, this couple had the equipment and they would sew the bags and then ship them back to the parents who had the business. So when they came to live at Ananda for a period of time, um, they set up in the old barn, which has since been torn down, they set up a little sewing factory and they sort of spread out the work and more of us were employed. And so you got to sit there if you wanted to and just sew the, which was, you know, just like little sewing machines in this straight line. And it, it was an odd time because people would come, I, this I remember, Anandi has a master's degree from some prominent university in city planning. And she was a gardener like everyone else. And you know, we, we gardened with hand tools. I mean, it was, we were really, we were in the 1800s. And, uh, so, you know, just really hot weather, just slaving out there. And, and sometimes the karma yogis or the guests or the apprentices, they were called at that time, would complain about, you know, that they didn't go through years of high-level college just to do this. And it was sort of a joke, you know, Ananda used the phrase, some of us are a little overqualified for the work we do, is <laughs> how she put it. So this is an apocryphal, not a true story, but Joe Tish would imagine when we were showing guests around the, retreat that they they would come into the the factory where they were sewing the uh, little bags and a guest would ask one of the residents there oh did did you have experience sewing before you came to Ananda well I had a little I was a brain surgeon (laughs) (laughs) and it was apocryphal not true but that's sort of that was sort of how we all felt it was so there was you know there was nothing glamorous to do and there was nothing, you know, high level, so to speak, to do. It was, you just, it was survival and you did the things you needed to survive. It was totally fun. Absolutely fun. It made us all very humble. And, you know, gradually people started coming with qualifications. And uh, 
you know, it became, it was a mixed bag. You'd come with qualifications and you could, you could work in your specialty. You know, master often didn't let, master often didn't let people work in their specialty because you bring in with it all of your egoic involvement in that and all of your habitual ways of making decisions, which are not the same as the way you do when you're in an ashram setting. So almost on principle, master would have people do other kinds of work. That's why Swami started out doing carpentry. Just because we're here to serve, we're not here to shine. But as we, as we developed and we began to need more high-level professions and began to attract a different kind of person, it got complicated. Because then you can't just say, well, you should be happy to wash dishes for the first five years. You know, it, then you, be, you just get kind of stiff. But it is also, it doesn't hurt to just let go of who you were and find out who you will be. Circumstances forced us on, into it. I never had any profession or any degrees or anything. I was a college dropout. So I just, I didn't, I was nobody. Cooking was like, for me, a step up from what I'd been doing before. <laughs> so it was great fun. Okay, well, I had to correct that. That picture of Swamiji with the, the lions, Satya, Satya's son was a lion tamer from Reno, and he came to visit once with his lions. I think he had two of them. So there's this picture of Satya and a lion and Swami just all sort of sitting there. It's a classic 1971 picture. You just kind of look at it, and you know, a large part of you wonders, how did that picture ever come to be taken? But there was, it wasn't Swami taming a wild creature. I mean, taking the picture was probably the lion tamer himself who kept them as pets. It was an odd time. Okay, now we'll start in. Um, Number three, six, seven. A woman disciple had treated someone unkindly. The master said to her, You can't truly love God if you treat others that way. God is in everyone. You won't win his love if you can't win the love of other people. You must place God first in your life, but reflect that other people too are his channels, they were given to you that you might learn to love him in all. This is a very um, profound and interesting statement. Over the years at Ananda, let let me go back a little bit. You know, in earlier conversations here, we have Master telling people, you know, don't mix too much with other people. And he said himself that, you know, he realized that his desire for convivial friends and so on, Master speaking of himself, was just a, a, a misplacement of his desire for union with God. And he, he told Diamata to stay a little bit apart from people. But then he also speaks here of reprimanding this woman because she was unkind. And sometimes people feel that if their focus is on God, then they, they don't really have to pay attention to the niceties of things. Um, in Autobiography of a Yogi, Master talks about when he first came to Sri Yukteswar, that he had sort of picked up the convenient idea that he could be sloppy about the things of the world because he was attentive to the things of God. And Sri Yukteswar said to him, you must learn to behave. And I know um, Swamiji was... You know, had had an extremely refined upbringing, much more than, um, I mean, he grew up in a much uh, more um, elegant household, certainly much more than I did. 
my my family was we had we were a refined family but we weren't elegant we weren't inclined like he is i remember being with his mother once and i have no idea why she said this i just remember that she said it the words were she it's i what prompted it i wish i knew but she said you know when i think about it i can't ever remember being served a fish course without a proper fish fork <laughs> and i thought to myself what is a fish fork <laughs> what is a fish course you know it's like i had no idea she grew up in oklahoma but uh it's still it's i think her parents and her family uh her father died when she was young he was french she went to paris to study the violin now that little phrase just sticks in my mind she was a very humble and loving lady she was not pretentious but she, you know she had her standards she had a very just like and so I kind of grew up in that household i i wrote in uh my book swami kriyananda's we've known him for for that book it wasn't actually for that book it was for <laughs> it was for a biography i thought i was going to write I uh Swami put me in touch with some childhood friends and relatives and so I I had all those interviews and when the book turned into stories I was able to incorporate them but uh one of his childhood friends who had been the daughter of his father's best friend in fact her middle name was Ray which was Swami's father's name because of the friendship between the fathers the two men but for a period of time i think her mother was ill and she actually went to live with the walters family but she she just talked about she said they were like royalty in some way she said swami and his mother and this was when they were living in scarsdale so swami this is after he was 13 um i've actually my friend when i went i i i when i was on the east coast once and i was actually staying with a devotee friend of ours who lives in scarsdale she took me over to the address to see the house and it it has a it's a sort of was a spanish style house and it the photographs of it usually show you only this much and you don't realize that it was quite a spacious home but it looks rather castle like and this friend commented on the fact that um that that the 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 family was very elegant not not luxurious but just elegant in in the truest aristocratic in the best sense that's the word she said especially swami and his mother she said they seemed to exist in a certain sort of bubble of their own which just was on a, another dimension and she just to finish she commented with his brothers there was one that was much younger but the older brother was closer in age she said we would always talk about who was dating whom and what records were popular and the latest gossip from school she said with don as he was called there you would never have those kinds of conversations with him you would only talk about serious subjects you never would just you would only talk about serious subjects you would you would never um have trivial conversation with him he just never did and so whenever you would see swami and his mother together you would feel like they had this just private world that they existed in it's very it was very very interesting to hear all of that now so where i was going with all of that is sometimes people get on the spiritual path and feel that it justifies uh behavior that would not be acceptable in polite society now bear in mind polite society is often a mask for things that are not at all attractive or admirable so we're not talking about superficial good manners 
But we're talking about actual, genuine, real consideration for people. But we also have to understand, and, and he puts us in there, that Master was reprimanding the woman for being actually unkind, not for not following conventional rules of courtesy. Because if a person is withdrawn and is somewhat silent, you don't have to be social. You don't have to be chattery. You don't have to put on a, a good face. You don't have to entertain people um, just to be outward. But unkindness is something else. Swamiji was extraordinarily careful about people's feelings, just to a degree that I didn't understand. I mean, it wasn't... I, I was always more interested in where I was going, and I, I was often unaware of the impact of my actions on people. I mean, this is just, unfortunately, the way people are, the way I certainly was. I was very, very busy in my own mind, and as a consequence, I, I just often didn't know. I was joking, I was telling uh, friends just over the weekend, um, Netri, Nancy Mayer, is a brilliant cook. I mean, she's a, she's a cook... Uh, Oh, she's like, she channels super consciousness when she cooks. I follow her recipes exactly. Nothing ever comes out like it comes out when she does it. Her recipes are exact, but they don't come out the same. She just does something else. And for many years, when Swami was still alive, they would do these beautiful fundraising dinners for Crystal Clarity, which would be these, like, $1,000 a plate, huge, elegant dinners, and she would spend three days cooking. And it was fun for me. I would often go up and help her. And I, I was sort of her, her, her left brain, and I would just make sure the project, not that she wasn't capable, but it would just work that way. I made sure that the problem, project would move along, and she made sure that it came out exquisite. But all these people would come to help, and since I don't live at the village and she does, I w- people would be coming that I often hadn't seen, maybe not since the year before, they would walk in, I would say, here's the cutting board, here's an onion, here's a knife, like this. And Netri would say, hello, how nice of you to come, you know. It sort of became a joke. It's just like, I just didn't cross my mind. You're here to cut onions, here's your onions. It wasn't actually unkind, but it was pretty unconscious. And, and then we learned, I learned from her, you know, that people have feelings. You have to respond. You have to be in other people's realities, not just in your own reality. See, that's what... Master's talking about. Unkindness is being in your own reality, which is to say subconscious. The, the, the definition of subconsciousness is that it is a self-created reality that does not intersect with other people's realities. Then that's where hurt comes from. I mean, when, when we're talking about it, when I'm explaining it from the ground up, we think of subconsciousness as sleep, But often when we're asleep, our world gets really big. You know, we have dreams, we have these fantastic adventures, and often the people we know are in those experiences with us. Now, most dreams are subconscious. I'm not talking about superconscious dreams. But it's entirely your world. You can be sleeping right next to someone. They can be participating, but they're not participating. It's just what you're making up. So subconsciousness is not just being asleep. It's, it's making your world as you would make it without a connecting reality to the world around you. Conscious 
is where we have a shared objectivity that still is idiosyncratic to whoever is looking at it. And superconscious is where we really come together, where, where divisions are really uh, dissolved. But all of our actions that hurt other people do not come from superconsciousness because on the superconscious level, we intuitively know what is appropriate. Now, the behavior on superconscious may not match the objective definition of what it is to be kind and to be nice. But, I mean, like a, a, a sadhu or a saint just can observe none of the conventions, but his, his consciousness is, is, is emanating a unifying perception of reality. Subconsciousness is when, here's the onion, here's the cutting board, I want this meal cooked and I don't even actually see that you're there. You know, the fact that, that you, you expect me to treat you like a friend just goes right over my head. All I'm thinking about is where I'm going. Now, to a certain extent on the spiritual path, you kind of have to be that way because you can't spend all your time being involved and concerned with everyone. Not only does it take too much time, but it also eats too much of your energy. And this is where, in, elsewhere in this book, Master has said, stay a little apart from people. You know, just you don't have to always be involved. Hold yourself within yourself. But we hold ourselves super consciously, not subconsciously. But sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, one gets confused and one doesn't really make the right decisions. And then you just have to keep. And then the spiritual path, you see, can give you a justification for that. And what Master was obviously trying to correct here, and because Swamiji's included all these different vignettes and hasn't always told us who Master was talking to and why he was saying it, sometimes he explains, sometimes he doesn't. And, and that's why things contradict each other, because it depends on who he's instructing. But here, obviously, this, I think it was a woman, you know, had a tendency to get involved in her own world and forget that if you hurt another person, you're hurting yourself. This is, everyone is God, because you can find a spiritual justification for it. They shouldn't be so sensitive. I'm just telling the truth. I'm doing Master's work. We needed to get it done. She was in the way. I mean, there's just lots of ways that you can make it okay. And Master was saying, no, actually it isn't. That these Everyone around you is also a channel of God. It's a, it's a, it's a fine line. I, I remember, um, of course, one of Ananda's uh, operating principles was people are more important than things. And um, the hard work in the garden, only some people had the tenacity and the, the spine really to do it because the summers were really hot and you just work hours and hours out there and when the, you know, when the crop needs to be harvested, it needs to be harvested. When it needs to be watered, it needs to be watered. It can't, it can't be put off. And Shivani worked with Hanel for a very long time and was very powerful in what she did. And sometimes guests would decide it was, too, I mean, I say guests. What I mean is, I, I, now they call them karma yogis. They were usually apprentices or people who were newer or trying it out. And they just, they weren't reliable. And it was very aggravating. So Shivani was talking to Swami about her frustration with this. And uh, Shivani said, people may be 
you know, people may be important than things, but aren't some things more important than people's egos? That was her question. And Swami said, yes, in certain cases, the project is more important than the person's ego. He said, we're really talking about their soul well-being. But then he sort of admonished her. He said, but before you take action, you better be sure you could tell the difference (laughs) between their soul welfare and the ego preference is what he meant. Because it is a fine line. And how you say it and what you're thinking behind it makes all the difference. Swamiji was talking about a particular woman who uh, was part of the Crystal Hermitage staff many years ago and how one person spoke to her and corrected her in a certain way and the woman was extremely upset. But then later Swami was able to offer exactly the same correction and the woman just took it very happily because the difference was that she knew that Swami was speaking to her only for her well-being whereas the previous person had spoken out of her preference and convenience. And that's where unkindness comes in. If people don't, they can tell. People are very smart. They can tell the difference, even if it's true. And then Master doesn't give you the space to say, well, it's all God, it's their fault. Not really. I mean, sometimes... It can't be helped. People are oversensitive. They take things wrong. They misunderstand. I mean, I certainly in the position that I'm in, I am extremely impressed how creatively sometimes people hear what I say. Just it, reading meanings into it and adding words and changing words in ways that are just really impressive. Just like so that the final result bears no resemblance either because it was second-hand or because in the moment, whatever the emotion was of the moment, it just completely twisted it. One, I remember that was didn't involve me, it actually involved Swami, but Swami had used the phrase towards someone, and it was, it was a, a reprimand. But the reprimand was somebody needs to take you in hand. And that phrase means, you know, that you really need, somebody needs to really guide you and show you what is appropriate in this situation. The person immediately turned that phrase into somebody needs to put you in your place, which, of course, is an insult. And that is not at all what Swami said. But the nuance of difference, the emotion, changed the nuance of difference. So when I myself have been caught up in creative listening, um, of my listening to my words, I had one experience with um, this person and I made some comments that I shouldn't have made. I was wrong in making them. But the person was very upset and told Swami what I'd said. Of course, what they reported was not what I'd said, not even close. And Swami was astute enough to know that I would never have said anything like that. It just didn't sound like me or anything. But he also knew that I must have done something or else I would not have provoked the reaction. So he told me, first he repeated what what had been said to him. I said, you know, well, actually, what I actually said was, I resigned from the ministry. <laughs> he said, resignation not accepted. And so then we went on from there. <laughs> and then he said, you know, of course, I didn't say anything like that. And he said, yes, of course, I know that. He said, but you must think not only of what a person, you know, what corrections could be made, but of a person's readiness to hear it. 
And that was the reprimand that was really needed for me because I was more involved in my subconscious enthusiasm for my own ideas than I was in the person who was receiving them. And that qualifies as unkindness. Because I could say it and because it was true, I made the, the next step that it should be said, which was what Swami was telling me. Of course it shouldn't be said. It should be spoken if it's helpful. Otherwise, it becomes unkind. And what is the point? Who are you serving? That's the question you have to ask. Who am I serving? And because God is also in everyone else and he's making his way in his own way and you want to facilitate that journey, you don't want to, uh, you know, hurt someone so that they lose heart. See, Swamiji's genius was that he was able to correct us in such a way that we never lost heart. Because as soon as you lose heart, as soon as you lose enthusiasm for the path, everything is gone. Otherwise, as long as you can just keep going. So it's much better to let things just run if speaking will actually drain people's energy. It's, or you just wait. It's very complicated, really. But there was one last point on this before I go on. Um, think how this went. It, it, I think this must have been in the context of his guru buys at SRF. I think that must have been the context of this. But it was, it was a puzzlement to us how people could be so unkind. It was just really hard for us to understand it. And Swami gave this picture once, which I, I have really appreciated. He said, you know, if you're climbing up a steep mountain and, and you, it take, it's taking all your concentration to know where to put your hands and to hold on and to keep focused and not be distracted, you just don't have time to pay a lot of attention to what's going on around you. Because if you do, you'll lose, you'll lose the, the single focus that you need. And this is where the concentration on God, as opposed to thinking about everyone else, really does come in. And so sometimes, inadvertently, or deliberately, but let's say inadvertently, you, people perceive you as being unkind. When you're not really unkind, you're just focused because you don't have any uh, capacity to do both things and you're just choosing the one that you can do. And when you sort of reach a plateau, and of course when you reach the top of the mountain, then you can breathe and see what's going on around you. So sometimes it's a whole incarnation like that. Sometimes a person is just going through a cycle of, of karma where there's just no bandwidth. And we just have to hunker down and get through it. I mean, in a spiritual community, we have to give each other a lot of uh, respect for good intention, even if there's bad action. But Master wanted to correct us philosophically that we can't justify unkindness because what does it matter? He also has that extra little phrase in there, they are all his channels which I think is also important. This, this has come up in other contexts. That, that people are often speaking God's will to us and we need to always have our ears open for that possibility. Sometimes they'll come to you deliberately and make an announcement that they have received from God and sometimes it's true. So Amiji says whenever he's ready to discount someone, he, there was this woman who used to visit us and she was a little wacky. I mean, she was 
she was a serious person spiritually, but she was also, I think, just a little nuts. She used to tell us that she would have a problem sometimes of accidentally dematerializing. <laughs> and she had to sort of remind herself not to do it. <laughs> we had so much fun with that. Note to self. This is from PG, PG Woodhouse. One of his books has, you know, note to self. You know, note to self. <laughs> Tie a knot in my hanky. Don't dematerialize with people who won't understand. <laughs> we just laughed and laughed. Well, this woman came once to visit and she demanded, did she have a personal interview with Swamiji? Um, he was, during those years, he was often in seclusion and simply just did not see people. You couldn't just come and demand an interview. He just wouldn't give them, only at very specific times. And even then, I think it was during the time, yeah, it must have been during the time when I was keeping his appointment, so I was very conscious of this. So he just didn't want to see her. But then he, the next day, either to me or I don't know who, was, who it was, he realized that he was dismissing her. What could she have to tell me? So out of humility, he thought, that's just always a bad attitude. So he sent word that, yes, he would see her. You know, he was always very attentive. You would think he, he wouldn't, but he was both setting the example and he was factual. He was like, who am I to say that, that she can't speak to me? So she came and she had a message to deliver that she said was from Master. And Swami said, I think it was. <laughs> you know, and he said she gave me a very she gave me a very good suggestion. It had something to do with Ananda itself. It wasn't personal, but he said as soon as you start dismissing people, then they you know God will God will surprise you. So there, you, I mean, I don't know because just as often people will tell you that they're speaking on God's behalf, and it's a little iffy. So, you, but you just have to keep it. You have to always be open and just wait to find out. And you have to be practical. So it's, it's both things are true. Okay? So, number 368. Looking back, I see that Bernard never really comprehended Yogananda's spiritual mission. Bernard was the disciple that was there when Swami got there, and he was the one that helped instruct Swamiji. He was one of the ministers there. He was a very erudite person and he made he made a he was he was a minister and a public person and he appeared to be a, a serious leader for master. So this uh, the fact what Swami's saying about Bernard is significant because Bernard wasn't just a cook or someone whose position you wouldn't expect him to understand. So Swami says, looking back, I see that Bernard never really comprehended Yogananda's spiritual mission. Indeed, he never even showed much interest in it. The Master tried repeatedly to get him to tune in to the deeper, more universal purpose of his work. Bernard once told me, the Master wanted to get me interested in serving his work. So after thinking about it, I came to him one day all fired up with new ideas for how to bring people flocking to us in large numbers. The master replied, however, when we are ready, God will send to us those whom he wants to help. To Bernard, this answer was incomprehensible. Hadn't the master himself kept urging him to show a greater interest in the work? As I myself saw this story, however... The master's answer suggested disappointment 
in Bernard's lack of understanding. Yogananda didn't see his work in terms of conversion. He saw it in terms of raising people's consciousness. As he used to say, I prefer a soul to a crowd, and I love crowds of souls. He did want to see many souls devoted to the divine search, but he never thought of them in terms of mere numbers. As he said once, I am not a merchant looking to see how many people enter the shop. Thus, to master, even organizing the work meant increasing our capacity and our fitness to serve. As far as I know, the master never again tried to interest Bernard in these things. Evidently, he decided he was not capable of the necessary comprehension. That's a very interesting whole big thing, isn't it? Okay, you start with that in the light of the fact that Bernard was one of Master's spokespeople and he was considered by others to be erudite and advanced. So you have, on one side, you have the members of SRF seeing their weekly ministers and the people that they do and not having much of an idea of what the path was. Swami himself writes in the path that... um, when, when Master lectured, Swamiji was just completely startled by the informality and the humor and the lack of pretense and the, the lack of importance. He writes that in the path about how easy Master was in front of people. Then he talks about Bernard's way. And he said Bernard fit his idea more of what a weighty sage would be like. You know, he had a deep voice and he, he spoke in an intellectual way and he backed up what he said and it was just an entirely different manner than Master had. So nobody knew who anybody was supposed to be. You have to also put this in context. There was no influx of Indian teachers. There was no back and forth between the two countries. Yoga was virtually unknown. Master was one of the few spokespeople with a few of the Indian swamis in the Ramakrishna order. But otherwise, you know, he practically had the field to himself. So Bernard's way of presenting the teachings to many people seemed more authoritative and more persuasive even than Master's own way. And Master gave him that role because it was his karma to have it. And, and, but Master was always trying to get Bernard to understand on a deeper level what they were really doing. And also remember how Master said to, to Swamiji, every man is disappointed and you mustn't disappoint me. And you have a great work to do. Swamiji said that Master began telling him, well, there are several ways that this works. Swamiji said his own temperament has always been whenever he finds anything that he thinks is worthwhile from when he was a child, his first impulse is to share it. He just wants everyone to enjoy what he enjoys. He can't enjoy it unless others are enjoying it. And he said that when Master was guiding him and then later commissioning him to really share these teachings and tell the world, Master was acting in complete accordance with Swamiji's own temperament. He was responding. And I believe Swamiji said, if I have this correctly, um, that it was perhaps after the garden party, it was after some point where, where Swamiji himself made a profound inner resolution that he would serve Master's work. 
And it was after that that Master began to say to him, you have a great work to do. Because he saw that Swami understood. And this is also what Swami would talk about. That Swami, partly because Swami was extremely well-educated and had a sense of history. He didn't have a sense of religious history necessarily, but he had a sense of history and he'd grown up in Europe. He spoke multiple languages. He, 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 he was not in any way provincial, Swamiji. So when he saw the phenomenon that was master, he was able to put it in a, in a more global context than many of the other disciples were able to do, um, either both because of their temperaments, but also just because of their lack of ability to understand even multiculturalism, you know, at a time when it was just simply not known. Swami had... There was a time, Swami said, when his German was better than his English. <laughs> you know, it was just like he, he grew up speaking three languages in, a, in Romania, of all countries, which was not at all like this one. Um, and he had that fundamental nature. But, of course, the other side of the spiritual path is we're here for God-realization. And so for Bernard to come... And be there for God-realization was also perfectly consistent on a certain level with the teachings. I've told the story in different contexts at different times that when I came to Ananda community in 1971, I came to be where Swami was. And if he had been in Antarctica, I would have gone there. If he'd been in, in, in Tanzania, I would have gone there. I just went to where he was because I knew that he could, he could help me become who I wanted to become. He, he was the personification of my own aspirations. I had never seen it before. And I just knew that where he was is where I needed to be. And it, it was the truth. And there, it was also, to a certain extent, a point of pride with me. And that's not good, but it was. That I was there because of Swami. I, I don't think I actually even elevated it to God-realization because I've, um, I've never seen myself as able in this lifetime to achieve that goal. I don't mean that I couldn't, but I never thought of myself as I'm going to realize God. So it, wasn't, it didn't even come like that. It was just, I'm going to be where Swami is. I'm going to learn what he has to, he has to offer me. And Ananda was great. I loved Ananda. I was really happy to have a place to live, to have a place to serve. I, I also have a very enthusiastic temperament, and I, I really like to, do, I like to give away whatever I have. And it was, it was fabulous that we had this retreat, and that I could not only be where Swami was, but I could also be involved in giving. So it was perfect. But I never placed any importance on the project. And that was a matter of pride for me also. That it's just like, you know, we're doing this, and I love living here, it's great fun, I could articulate it, but some part of me just dismissed it as being irrelevant to, what, to why I was there. And what shifted me was the realization one day that it was not irrelevant to Swami. And... It, this fortunately, this has always saved me. Um, I've never tried to teach Swami the teachings. <laughs> it's it's a surprise. It's surprising to me over the years how many people actually have, because I used to be a secretary, so I'd see a lot of the correspondence. 
people would reprimand him for doing something they thought was contrary to non-attachment or the law of karma or something like that. I mean, really, either the first few years were quite different than the last. Um, and I would think to myself, in fact, I actually have on other occasions said, who taught you about the law of karma? Like, you actually think you have to explain it to him? Like, oh, thank you for reminding me that actions have consequences. I forgot. I mean, like, get real. I remember with this one woman once, she had taken Swami to task for something. And I said, just, just think like this. In any given situation where, e- where there might be ego involvement, who do you think is likely to have more ego involved? You or Swami Kriyananda? And she just looked at me and then began to laugh. You know, I'm just like, she got the point. She had just gotten caught up and started lecturing her own teacher on his teachings. Okay, so when I would see a discrepancy between how I define the path and how he was living it, I was very fortunate in the fact that my first impulse would be to think, I don't understand, instead of thinking that he doesn't understand, which seemed like a no-brainer to me, but it was surprisingly not always that way. So when I realized that Swami took building Anand extremely seriously, and I did not take it seriously at all, and I began to realize that, that he, had a, he had the right perspective, and there was really, the, the probability was that I was really wrong in some way that I hadn't imagined yet. So I really, from that time, which was very early on in the early 70s, I have really tried to think why it matters. You know, why does it matter? It's all a dream. It's all going to go away anyway. The the philosophy is so supportive of being completely uninvolved. And it's so supportive of taking a rather aloof, I'm above it all, you know, I'm too advanced to really be involved. Swamiji once said said the phrase, which is a very important one, People think that they're non-attached, but what they really are is uncommitted, which is really different. Because if you're uncommitted, that means you're not giving your energy to it. In um, the Bhagavad Gita commentary, um, Swamiji wrote this, I mean, something that I'd always known intuitively, but he just articulated. He articulates the reason why we must always strive for excellence. And we must do everything to the absolute best degree that we can is because for the yogi to advance, you have to master the gunas. And our lack of excellence and our lack of complete commitment is invariably because we are being tamasic. It's because we're not willing to put out the energy to really do the needful. We're we're protecting our own weaknesses we're holding on to our grievances. We're simply not willing to put out energy. Swamiji once asked me, I, I, I had a very mixed relationship with writing, and it was, I, for many years I knew I was supposed to start writing, but I wasn't. One day he just said to me, are you too busy, or are you lazy, or are you afraid? I said, hmm, all three, Swamiji. He said, well, I think you better get started. And so, in fact, I did. But yeah, and none of those were um, sattvic. And to a certain extent, they weren't even rajasic. They were just tamasic. And the, the project, whatever it was, was in order for 
you know, the first order of business was in doing it, the yogi would master the gunas. And so among reasons why we need to serve the work and we need to care about serving it is if we're not committed, then we don't generate the energy and the magnetism to change ourselves. And, and there's this, this fine line where we're just really just doing what we want, but if what we want can have a spiritual veneer over it, it looks like we're following a high path when actually really what's at the center of it is this is what I prefer. And this is where Sister Gyanamata said, you know, that, that it was hard for her to realize that she had to surrender everything. Even those things that harmed no one. Even those things that were mine by right. I loved how she put that. She said, it all had to go because the whole ego has to dissolve. So my aloofness, my lack of, my non-attachment from building Ananda in the name of my higher karma destiny was just a lack of commitment. Because when you commit to something you know, you, you don't get to take days off. You don't get to d- dismiss it. You don't get to say it's somebody else's problem. You don't get to say, I don't want to. You know, it's commitment requires an enormous self-mastery to follow through on. And there's tremendous power in that. And if we, if we justify a lack of commitment by calling it non-attachment, it, the project suffers, but that the one who suffers is the self. Let's take a little break, then we'll come back to finish this. That's the first part of, of Swamiji talking, I mean, of this particular one, about who Bernard was, how he perceived the path, what he thought Master was doing. Swamiji also talked about Taramata, who was a very close disciple of Master, who edited autobiography and you know, was the Master's editor. When Master bought Mount Washington, her only comment was, well, now your troubles really begin. You know, it's just, she just didn't have an interest. She wasn't driven to share the teachings. It just wasn't how she saw it. She just saw that um, Swami writes that uh, in various places. But he, he, t- he said that Taramata, brilliant and advanced as she was, her idea of Master's work was this sort of uh, fortress in which this pure and great teaching is held in all its pristine glory, and we protect it from the um, diluting influence of the public. And, and Swamiji's point of view was, we're here to serve and we want to just serve as much as we can. You know, that protecting it from the diluting influence of the public sounds a little funny. I've had to think about that for many years, but I now understand what she means. This is how SRF has developed. In, in SRF, if you're a center leader... Uh, and you conduct a Sunday service, every week you receive a, a written sermon on the topic, and you read it. Because the the main center has taken that topic and has written out exactly what that topic means, what the right points are. So everybody hears the pure teaching. If people speak spontaneously, sometimes they either diverge inadvertently from that message or they misunderstand it and they present it in a slightly different way. So all of a sudden, instead of everybody getting exactly the same pure exact teachings, 
a person has now changed it into how it seems to you. Now, ideally, that improves it. But inevitably, sometimes it doesn't. And so, um, Taramata's idea was that the people who practice the teachings, for the most part, will not understand it as well as the monks and nuns will who live at Mount Washington. And therefore, we must make sure that nothing gets said in Master's name that isn't exactly what Master would want, want said. We have to protect the teachings from the diluting influence of the people who practice it. And so a whole lot of other things follow from that, which is what you see in SRF now, but the initial impulse behind it, that's exactly what it was. Swami's point of view was anybody can be in tune. Personal interpretation is what the path of self-realization is all about. And the truth doesn't need any human defenders. It will just sort itself out. Now, this is also the West versus the Eastern approach to spirituality. In the West, we put a tremendous faith in institutions. And, and, and we want somebody authoritatively to tell us, and then we know what the truth is, and then we repeat it. In India, they have very little faith at all in institutions. They believe in individual inspiration. At least this has been the tradition. And so their point of view is, if somebody's truly inspired by God... People will recognize that they are. They will, they will be uplifted by it. And it will endure. And if they're not inspired by God and it's just a flash in the pan um, d- delusion, then it may flower for a while, but then it will just die of its own accord because it won't have the power of truth behind it. So there's no need to organize it and define it and protect it because God himself will protect it. And people's intuitions will protect it. They'll just gradually see. Some people will be fooled, but we don't have to protect everyone from being misguided. So Swami's organized Ananda with a minimum of structure, some structure, but a minimum, and has tried to teach all of us how to express truth ourselves rather than merely parrot it. And their point of view has been the opposite, which is to protect it. So it's always clear. So nothing is said in Master's name that isn't approved by them. And they made a, a very solid attempt to, to um, take us, Ananda, out of the picture because we were such an affront to that whole premise because we were so... If the only true teaching could come out of Self-Realization Fellowship, Swami was... He, he, he shouldn't exist. <laughs> and people should not be inspired because it gave... It undermined the, their basic premise. So it was very important for them to try to take that uh, that authority away from us, but it's not the American system, so they weren't able to. It wasn't God's will either, so they weren't able to. Okay, but now coming back to this, um, so the whole idea that we have a mission to uplift people is something, Swami actually even said in some point, he said it's not something that can be taught. You just either feel it or you don't feel it. You, you know, you feel this compelling desire to give the truth to other people. You, you, you may do it for lots of karmic reasons. Who knows? Swamiji himself has said, put it this way, that he himself, he said, in past lives had many, many doubts. And he is, because of that, he understands what people don't understand. 
And he's, he's very good because he said nobody can have a doubt that he himself hasn't had. So, and he's patient with people's doubts. Um, but another way I thought about that at one point is that he has to balance the karma. He has to balance the karma of doubting by giving people, by solving their doubts. Now, I've thought about that. That occurred to me one day about myself, that I may not actually have to do this forever, but I think I have guided people powerfully in the wrong direction. (laughs) I don't think of it so much as Swami did about doubts, as just whatever I believe, I commit myself to it, and I'm I'm been a political person and a revolutionary. I mean, these are all in past incarnations, and I'm sure I've espoused many false causes and drawn a lot of people with me. And so now I've had to spend 45 years of my life offering people something that is really true. But at some day, I believe the karmic stick scale will balance, and it just won't be necessary anymore. And I, I'll, you know, some incarnation. I'll just be a very silent, quiet person somewhere because it'll be done. Because there's nothing inherent about any of these roles. We're all here for our own spiritual liberation and whatever brings us to that. Of course, there's the point of transcending all personal karma. And then one just does whatever is needed. It doesn't have anything to do with you anymore. In, in some place, Swami Kriyananda commented that, I think even said in her next lifetime, and where this came from, I don't know, that Dayamacha would live a very private life and just be a, a, a bhakti wandering by the Ganges. Now, I have that as an idea, but I don't quite remember where it came from. But it's just like, because she's had this karma, she's had to work out. <coughs> but once it's done, it's done. It's not a reward for spiritual advancement. The more advanced you get, the more organizations you get to run. <coughs> it's just a karmic necessity. Yes. Uh, don't you think it's an inherent part of uh, spiritual expansion to want to help others? But you don't have to do it in a public way. Think about Yogi Ramya, who Master said was a full, fully liberated and who lived quietly in this village and had a few disciples and talked to the people around him about food, mostly. He never just did anything. And when Swami asked the question, his response was, God has done what he wants to have done through this this body but he was in super consciousness and therefore his energy he was always giving but there's many ways to give and remember how master when Rajasi was meditating on the beach and he was walking by and with someone and they were talking and he said we must be quiet and then he said you have no idea what blessings are drawn to this work when even one person meditates as deeply as Rajasi does so but if we don't have a giving attitude, here's the fourth and last stage of the journey where we, we have, you know, greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. That's the, such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. That's all from the Festival of Light. Here then is the fourth and last stage, which is where one just, there's no self. One simply wants to serve. But then how you serve depends on this unique combination of elements which makes each one of us who we are. That's how Swami talked about how in every incarnation, Master had essentially the same personality. 
He was a warrior. He was a powerful leader. You know, that was just who he was. And he was Arjuna. He was William. He was Ferdinand III. Those are the ones uh, we just know about. But it was always essentially the same personality. So when, when people would say to Swami Kriyananda that the role that he's played in Master's life has been very much like the role St. Paul played in the life of Jesus, which is um, the, the, most of the disciples of Jesus considered what Jesus brought to be Judaism because it was Judaism. He was the avatar to the Jewish people. And the, um, it, and the Jews were the only people in the area who were still living according to the principles of Sanat and Dharma, because it, it, it was a great Sanat and Dharma tradition brought through Moses, and everyone else around them did not understand Sanat and Dharma at all. It was corrupted by a priesthood, but there was also the Essene movement in Judaism, so there was the purity and the impure, but it was all about Judaism. And that was just what it was. And so Paul... But what happened was, after Jesus died, just one by one, all the synagogues just shut their doors against the followers of Jesus. And and they weren't able to reach, they weren't able to make any progress among the Jews. So Paul decided he would go talk to who would listen. And so he, he went out and he went into what was called the Gentile world or the pagan world. And he started talking to them as if they could also become followers of Jesus and be saved by Jesus. And this was a huge controversy because the other disciples thought, this is Judaism. This isn't, you can't be. I mean, there was no such thing as Christianity. It was Judaism. And in the letters of Paul, you hear him arguing, constantly arguing, and the argument, my favorite, they argue about whether or not you can be saved by Jesus if you're not circumcised. So because the Jews were the only men in, the, in that part of the world who were circumcised, and it was a mark of their covenant with God. So you, as an adult male, if you became a disciple of Jesus, the, most of the disciples said, well, you have to convert to Judaism. That's what you're doing, and that means if you're an uncircumcised man, you have to be circumcised. So, so Paul has these long arguments about whether or not salvation depends on circumcision, which you read it now and you think, what? You know, like, what? What kind of a conversation is this? But it was incredibly real. I mean, that was just one of many laws. Could you eat whatever food you wanted? Did you have to follow all the ritual things? In other words, did you have to be a Jew to be a Christian? But because Paul carried it to the Gentiles, because Paul thought this was a message for the whole world and that there was no narrow reality to it. So if you compare the way SRF has presented master's teachings compared to the way Swamiji has, has done them with all the books and the music and the communities and the material success course and the Akash lessons and the education for life. It's just like he's looked at every area of life and tried to figure out what it should be, whereas SRF's approach to it has been very um, orthodox, you might say. Well, that's not fair because Swami's very orthodox, but it's been just much narrower and the only people who are really allowed to teach in SRF are the monks and nuns. So it's not quite the same as Judaism, but it's very close to it. It's like you have to you start with, you have to be a monk and nun, and you 
you simply can't do anything. I had a friend who lived in Australia, and he, he wanted to build a temple. He wanted to make something happen there. He went all the way to Diamata to try to get permission. I'm sorry, you're not a monastic, you can't do it. So he basically gave his energy to a different Swami and just helped that Swami build his work because he had to do something. But it wasn't what he would have done. But, so, but now the end of all of this is, so therefore people would try to say that Swami must have been Paul in a previous incarnation. Swami had two comments. One was, I would like to think that Paul was liberated by now. <laughs> it was the first thing he said. <laughs> and the second thing he said was, I never really liked the guy all that much. <laughs> I don't feel in tune with his personality. The personality of, of Paul was just very different than Swami's personality. And he just thought it unlikely that he could have been I mean, Paul was very, he was very forceful. And he started out persecuting the, the um, Christians. It just didn't fit. My personal theory, which is totally my personal theory, is that if Swamiji was one of the disciples, he might have been Thomas. Because, and this is just me, because one, Thomas was known as the doubter. And Swamiji always put that as his personality. And that was, that's small. But the other part of it is, is that, and this is all from this esoteric writing of uh, this man named Abbot George, who's also was, is, was Swami Nirmalananda, disciple of Ananda Ma and a friend of Kriyananda's. I mean, he's, Abbot George is an eccentric character, but he's, he's a genuine, a very genuinely, deeply spiritual person. But um, the whole tradition of Thomas is that Thomas had an assignment directly from Jesus that was different than the rest of the disciples. And he was assigned to go to India. And so after Jesus was crucified, um, all the disciples got together to decide what they were going to do, but it was already known what Thomas was going to do, and he was supposed to go to India. So he did. He went to India, and he built... Christianity in India from the south. And he was martyred eventually and his body is in the cathedral there in Chennai. And it's just it's just very interesting. And the fact that Master from the beginning always told Swami or he, Swami understood from him that he was to go to India. Master was going to take Swami to India and he was going to have him teach in India, then he was going to leave him there to work in India. And eventually Swami did go, and the reason he went to India is because everyone knew that Master had wanted Swami to go to India. So six years after Master had died, Dayamata went to India for the first time, and Swami went with her, and then they left him there to do the work, because that was the assignment Master had given him. And then Swami, of course, it blew up with SRF. And, but, you know, so in 1962 he was uh, lifted out of India by SRF, and for 10 years he couldn't get a visa because they corrupted the Indian government's perception of him. They said he was a CIA agent and a Christian missionary in disguise. So as a consequence, the Indian government wouldn't give him a visa, but as a consequence he had to start in Nanda. And he had to work in America. Because otherwise, when he was expelled, he would have just gone back to India and never come back just would have gone. But then in 1972, he finally went back for the first time. 
but this just to finish this. Every year, Swami, uh, when I was working with him, it was always part of the conversation. When it would come around to make decisions for what he would do in January, it would always be, I'll be happy to do that unless I go to India. <laughs> and every year it was always, well, you know, yes, but he would never give his word on until he knew whether he was going to India. And he, he didn't go to India most of the time, but it was always in the back of his mind. And um, so it, it was when he finally, in two, wasn't until 2003 that he was called back. But it was always there. So anyway, that's my part about Thomas. But what that part has to do with, oh yes, Swami was saying that he was, he was saying that he didn't feel that an understanding of the mission could be learned. He said, it just has to be part of who you are, that you have that missionary zeal. I often talk to people who are part of Ananda because Ananda Village is such a magnetic and such a a marvelous, complete spiritual environment that people who get involved there, you know, feel a certain, um, like they ought to want to stay there. Uh, in, and that if they don't want to stay there, then there might be something wrong with them. So sometimes I get in conversations with people, and I just say very simply, you know, there are two, there are two, well, there's countless, but there's also two fundamental streams in spiritual life. You know, one is to retreat from the world into an ashram life, and the other is to be a missionary. And if you're a missionary, you're a missionary. And if you're a missionary, you can't live in retreat in an ashram life because everybody just hovers around waiting for somebody to stumble onto the property so you can teach them something, you know. <laughs> if you're a missionary, you want to be, um, well, as Swami humorously said, you need to live among the heathen, because if you want to convert the heathen, you have to be where they are, you know. And if you do, if you think of the traditional missionaries going out to these jungle locations to tell people about Christ, it's a whole but they go, they deliberately leave the protective environment of the ashram because you have to be among uh, people who don't know what you know if that's what you feel you were born to do. And it's just different ways or different phases of life where you, where you work on either side. And some of us, and I count myself among it, among it, although maybe at some point I won't be, but I'm just a missionary. Even from the very beginning of the time I was at Ananda Village, I was always teaching at the retreat. It was just, my job was that. And then Swami, in the early 80s, just put me on the road, and here I am. But it's because I'm missionary by temperament. And I can imagine that I would enjoy an ashram life, but I also think I would get bored. Because it just doesn't, you know, it it doesn't work. Now I could be a writer. I, I realized the writing, being a writer was perfect. Because you're a missionary, but you get to stay by yourself. <laughs> I didn't. I only discovered that in the last couple of years, <laughs> but that works. You get the you get the best of both worlds. But Bernard, even though he was teaching in public, this is what Swami's writing here. He didn't really get what he was doing. He didn't understand it. So whatever it was, he suggested to Master. He finally you know, somehow tried to get in tune with what Master was asking, whatever Bernard suggested showed such a complete misunderstanding of what the mission even was that Master had to reprimand him. And then Bernard just threw up his hands. But Swamiji commented many times that Bernard just, he always, he never quite seemed to be able to tune in to what 
Master was trying to do. And this is where Master just gave up. He was trying to inspire him with a certain understanding, but Bernard just was incapable of receiving it. In, uh, let's see now, where would this be? It's probably just in the book that I wrote. I'm trying to think where I got the material from. I think I got it from a talk Swami gave. But he was talking about the fact that, that oh, I know, it was about when Swami was started to write about leadership. He said that it, was, it, was, it was understood in SRF during the time that Master was there that Master was not good at organizing. He, he just couldn't organize. That the, the SRF would never get organized as long as Master was there. And Swamiji just said it was just accepted. That's how they all talked about it. But Swami actually, in meditating on it more deeply years later, realized that Master was a superb organizer. He just organized in a different way, which is he organized by magnetism and inspiration. And then Swamiji talked about himself, about how he organized in exactly the same way. And I, I myself have experienced it, which is, he said, he, he gives people responsibility, but he, he said when, Swami said, when he was in charge of the monks, you would think, he said, that Master would sit him down and explain to him how he wanted to do it. But he said Master gave him very few instructions, just occasionally would make some small idea, or if he saw Swami really going wrong, might suggest that he go in another way. Swami said, in retrospect, if Master had given him any specific instruction, he said, he would have just focused on that and done his very best to make it come out that way. But he said he would have been acting from what Master had said rather than the inspiration that came from him. And he said what Master really did was that Master would inspire him and if, if Swami was capable of receiving the inspiration, and then Swami talked about how he works, he said he gives people responsibility, and then this is how he put it, he said then he projects ideas to them. And if they're receptive, and if the ideas resonate with their own sense of what needs to be done, then they will receive those ideas, and then they will act on them from the inside. Yeah. I, I, I experienced that when after I'd been living here for a f- few years. It, the, it, it actually came to me very vividly the day we dedicated our community in 1990, it was. I was standing in front. Swami was sitting behind me. I was standing in front talking about what we'd done. And I, I don't I mean, it's not that I didn't know it, but I experienced it. I realized that every single thing we'd done, he'd put the ideas into our head. But there was never any... You know, there was no voice, there were no letters, there were no, I'm here, inspiring you. It was so, it was so subtle that you would just have this flow of energy. You would just have these ideas. <clears throat> and there would be a, a, a confidence in them because they resonated. And I realized, and, and in this little book that Nishala wrote, I can't remember now what it's called, but it was, it's a very good book. It's about community, and she interviewed a lot of people who had worked with Swami. She published this book 20 years ago, Reflections on Community Living, on Living. But in that book, um, she, she did that book from interviews. Both Nitai and, and Davy had, made, had said something. Um, Nitai had commented about how Swami just gave him responsibility for the school and then just left him alone 
I mean, left him on his own, is how he, he meant it. And then Davy, and hers was, she was just being humorous, as a person would be. She talked about how Swami rented the big 45-room mansion in San Francisco, and then just said bye-bye, <laughs> and just left them there to do it. And she was being light about it. Swami read that in the book. He called both of them on the phone. He said, I never left you alone. I was always with you. And, you, and he, he wanted them to change that in the book. Isn't it interesting? He said, my consciousness was always with you. And that's, and see, that's what he was trying to, whatever Bernard picked out, Bernard picked ideas from who knows where, and they didn't bear any relationship to whatever Master was projecting and trying to get Bernard to understand. But Bernard couldn't get in tune with it. And so Master never brought it up again because Bernard was incapable. Just like that. Didn't mean he was a bad disciple. This is where Swami said, when Master said, all other the men have all disappointed me and you mustn't disappoint me. Swamiji said he, he had good disciples, but none of them could understand Master would project these expansive ideas and they couldn't receive them. They couldn't understand it. Whereas Swami received it all, just knew exactly what he was supposed to do. Very interesting, isn't it? All right. That's the end. Um, We did two. We did 367 and 368. Thank you. And there won't be a class next week. We're having the colony leaders meeting, so I'll be at the village on Tuesday. And then we're going to go backwards in the book and uh, pick up something that where the recording got lost. I don't know what number it is, but we're going to just go back because we might as well have a complete series. Now enough time has passed. I remember at the time that I particularly liked that class and I was really disheartened to th- thought of doing it over, but now I don't even remember what it was, so it'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Might as well have a complete set.